Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents, and today our panel is going to talk about logic and reason and education, and I'm going to ask that each one uh, that I introduce say a few words about themselves. So first of all, I would like to begin with PJ. Good morning. Good morning. I'm the helper. Uh, basically, uh, you know, Peter J. I'm the guy who runs the radio station, tries to make sure that everything is plugged in, and uh, along with Franklin TV. And uh, Frank lets me ride sidecar on his program, you know, just for the fun of it. And Jeff Roy? Well, great uh, great to be here again, uh, Frank. Uh, as uh, some of you may know uh, and others may not know, I'm the uh, state representative uh, for Franklin in Medway. I've been in the legislature now since 2012, just finishing up my eighth year. I currently serve as the uh, chairman of the Joint Committee on Higher Education. And prior to uh, my service in the legislature, I did spend uh, 10 years on the Franklin School Committee, nine of those as the uh, chair. And that's where I met the esteemed Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. And that Leah? Yes, my name is Natalia Linas. I am the, currently the executive director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. I have, my career has been quite mixed, a uh, significant number of years, over 10 years at the United Nations. And important in this conversation is to point out that I grew up in Greece um, and have a perspective of how other countries are doing civics, education, and I'm a mom of three young kids, so there's a lot in in it uh, from a looking to the future perspective too. And Michael Walker-Jones. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with you guys again. Uh, I am a um, former educator, K-12 educator and higher ed. Uh, I'm retired, own my, con uh, my own consulting business now where I'm a consultant for uh, higher education uh, authorities and commissions. Uh, and I am a Franklin resident of about almost 30 years now. Uh, my children grew up here. I'm a father of four, um, and uh, my background is in human learning and cognition, which gets me into a lot of uh, logic and rhetoric and as well as uh, thought patterns. And Michael. trouble. Yes, and trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, why don't you begin? Well, you, you know, uh, uh, in one of our previous sessions, we talked about uh, how it is that our, uh, our education system can be a little more responsive in helping our citizens to understand their role uh, as part of this uh, republic democratic experiment. And I know, Jeff, uh, you brought up the fact that Massachusetts uh, may be one of, few uh, one of a few states that has initiated a civics uh, requirement, uh, which is basically a requirement in our curriculum and in our teaching that we explain to our young people as they're growing up in the K-12 system, you know, about not only our system of government, but their role in it, uh, not in a partisan way, but in a way of responsibility and in a way that hopefully articulates how fragile our system is. And 
one of the things that I've observed is I think it's extremely important that we do that on a real basis, not on an idealistic basis or uh, based on some, uh, you know, sort of distortion of what our history is, but the real history, because we've gone through some real tumultuous times. And I'd like to hear, uh, you know, some of your thoughts about, uh, for example, uh, teaching our young people you know, about uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the 1619 uh, project, for example, in terms of how this country is really based on cheap labor, uh, you know, and was built around cheap labor, but that cheap labor came at the cost of slavery, for example, uh, and teaching that in a real way in terms of, well, what's the economic impact of that now when businesses are, quote unquote, still looking for cheap labor uh, and then also tie into that, what's the role of government, and then what's the role of the media, uh, as well as everything else, you know, around that, uh, our, our medical system, et cetera. So what are your thoughts? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, this has been uh, something that has been critical in my uh, portfolio since uh, school committee days, and right up uh, to the state legislature days, and the importance of um, you know, civics education is, it can't be understated. And uh, I think recent activities that we've seen throughout the country uh, only further emphasize the need for a quality civics education. And I was so thrilled when uh, the legislature actually passed a, a civics education bill, a comprehensive program, not only passed it in and issued you know, uh, mandates about what should be taught, but also put money behind it and setting up a civics uh, education project trust fund uh, that includes government money, but it can also include uh, outside money to fund these projects. Um, you know, education and curriculum is typically the, um, the, the product of what a local school committee wants. They di dictate what's in their committee. The state, as a large supplier of money, can uh, dictate certain things that must be taught. And I think education reform from 1994 really cemented that uh, notion that we have uh, very uh, well-established curriculum frameworks. And one of them is the history uh, frameworks, which were recently revised in 2018. And uh, I would encourage you to take a peek at uh, those curriculum frameworks because they really set out what the expectation is from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education as to what will be uh, uh, taught in the schools. And uh, one other, other piece that's not directly related to what happens in our public schools, but it's an exciting opportunity for civics education in Massachusetts, and that's the establishment of the uh, Edward M. Kennedy Institute uh, for Civics uh, out in, uh, right next to the uh, John F. Kennedy Library in Dorchester. That is a robust uh, institution uh, that actually has right in the middle of the building a full-scale model of the United States Senate, and they routinely invite uh, students from throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to come in and participate in a real civics exercise, be a, be a senator, uh, 
participate in committee hearings, uh, deliberate and debate on the uh, Senate floor. I've brought groups from uh, Franklin uh, High School and Medway High School into the uh, Institute back in the pre-COVID days. Uh, hopefully that's gonna resume again in the fall of 2021, but it's a real robust opportunity uh, to uh, engage in real government work to understand how your government works and, and how you can be a productive uh, citizen in our society. So I think that's a, a, an overview of uh, what we're doing in the legislature to uh, enhance these opportunities. And I'm excited to see uh, it taking off and growing. I think those are great opportunities, Jeff. And let me uh, share an anecdote. As a student myself, I used to do model UN, and then I found myself working at the UN. And actually reflecting back at the model UN, I feel like the students were coming up with better resolutions, better <laughs> ideas. And at the UN, I was like, maybe we need to get those model UN kids to, to help us out. But, you know, what I have found, and you know, I, I ran for Congress, and maybe you have found that in your campaigns, is actual student engagement in campaigns. Like the real thing, I had 15-year-olds who were so active and so passionate, they couldn't even vote. And the ones who were 17 or 18 were the most excited because it was their first election. And, and really making those opportunities and, and encouraging that, that real life application. And you know, there's, there's the point where we need to talk about the education piece, but also how do we make our governance more receptive to listening. You know, obviously the climate movement is the one where we have seen the most push, but in other ways, there are ways to involve young people every day. And, and we should have that conversation too. I tell you, in my, uh, in my eight years, uh, one of the best things and most exciting things is bringing students into the state house. So I'll bring tour groups in uh, from the schools throughout the district. And uh, the largest group I bring is about 95th graders from the Oak Street Elementary come each year. And uh, you try to entertain 95th graders, but it's, they are wrapped in their attention. And the feedback I get from both the parents that come and the kids that come is they're excited to see uh, what actually happens. Uh, you know, Frank, you've joined me for the uh, State House Tours. You produced a, a series for, uh, for Franklin TV on, on that building. Getting people in is, is incredible. And for high school students, we actually have uh, a day set aside each April where they come in and they act as, as either a, a member of the House of Representatives, a member of the Massachusetts Senate, or a member of the Supreme Judicial Court. And they actually engage in deliberations and pass bills. And, uh, you know, these are memorable experiences. And one of the young men who came in uh, and did a high school project uh, while he was at Franklin High and then interned in my office at the State House uh, is today a candidate for the Franklin Town Council. So uh, this type of engagement uh, really works. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, you had that experience at the uh, the model UN, it's exciting. You know, as a former educator too, uh, I can say that uh, one of our methodologies in teaching is to try to get, especially high school students, but it works at almost every single level, right down to preschool, is to get students engaged in real life activities that relate to something we're trying to embed in them uh, for the long term. For example, I know when I was a social studies teacher, it was. Uh, we had a project where uh, 
I, as a teacher, and uh, I must give credit to my uh, to my uh, sponsoring teacher who taught me this particular methodology. Uh, I, as a teacher, would go outside and uh, litter, let's say, on the school grounds with a uh, policeman standing by who would then come over and give me a citation uh, for littering. Uh, and then I'd have to go to court. And it was my class's responsibility to represent me. And that that lesson or that particular experience that whole unit, everything that I wanted to teach them about uh, the court system, about our criminal justice system, because we could tangentially get into that, albeit, uh, you know, littering is not a, uh, a, uh, a felony. Uh, and in most instances, not even a misdemeanor. It's actually just sort of, a, a, you know, one of those community kinds of crimes. <laughs> okay, but our students, oh my goodness, they would take it so seriously. And at the end of that 10 week period, I had so many students who better understood. And I had some students who, because I was teaching at an inner city school, some students who told me it was the first time ever that they had sat at the table, not as a, a person who was there with a defendant or a defendant but as a person who was now trying to advocate for that person who was the defendant. And that alone was like, uh, you know, was like worth the price of admission. So I'm a firm believer uh, that, you know, we've got to get those experiences, but get them in a positive way that our students can truly relate to the institution, not from a classroom, but inside those institutions themselves. And then when I lived in Germany, I uh, come to find out that those kinds of activities with regard to students uh, was almost a requirement. Every student had to go through some of that. And I don't know if any of you have had any international experience in terms of teaching, but some other countries do a much more robust job in terms of engaging their citizens uh, in with regard to what their responsibilities are. Michael, following up on, on what you said or your experience and following up what Jeff said about the 2018 uh, Educational Act, I'm, I'm going to read from the act about the eighth grade in Massachusetts now, what eighth grade students have to do. Civics projects may be individual, small groups, or class-wide designed to promote a student's ability to analyze complex situations, consider differing points of view, reason, make logical arguments, and support claims using valid evidence, engaging in civil discourse with those opposing uh, positions, and demonstrating an outstanding of the connections between federal, state, and local policies including issues that may impact the student or community. And they have to have eighth grade projects that are, my understanding, in three components. The first one is to discuss issues in the uh, community or issues that they may want to deal with. Second is how to implement uh, a, a, an issue. And third is the implementation of that issue that is ongoing this year in the Franklin Public Schools. I, WFPR, the station you're listening to now, 102.9, has a school program. And I heard one of the teachers uh, explaining and, and talking about it. 
it seems like this is the movement, but we mentioned logic in reason in uh, in how to one of the sentences is, is the roles and responsibility of a citizen in a democracy, the development of skills to access, analyze and evaluate written and digital meaning as it relates to history and civics. H how does anyone have an answer? How do you develop logic and reason uh, to look at issues? Well, yeah, well, well, believe it or not, uh, uh, and and uh, I don't want to dominate the conversation here, so I'll be quick. Uh, yes, we understand how to do that. And yes, we can teach that. And yes, there are curriculums, in-depth curriculums, again, from preschool through postgraduate school that deal with logic and reasoning and methodology. Uh, and in particular, in some of the uh, both uh, social as well as hard sciences, there's a whole rubric for understanding how to approach uh, a problem from uh, uh, either from logic uh, or from methodology. And what I mean by methodology is, for example, there may be a protocol uh, in chemistry where, uh, and I think Pete, you mentioned this <laughs> before we got started, you know, where you take certain chemicals and you're trying to come up with a process but you will add other chemicals in order to enhance that process. But at the mm -hmm. end of that process, the, some of the chemicals that you added are gone because they're not essential or they are uh, taken away through the process itself. Well, to understand that, you've got to understand the logic of how these things can be combined and then recombined. And then what are some of the agents that help you get to that end result? Well, right. the same thing is true in the social sciences as well. Okay. Uh, for example, when I'm watching a television program, uh, let's say I'm watching Fox News. When I'm watching Fox News, it is important for me to understand what part of that program is editorial, what part is factual, and what part might be uh, just the opinion of the person who's speaking at the moment. Okay. Uh, and again, we can teach that process of recognition and observation uh, and coming to a conclusion. However, if you don't have any of those kinds of cognitive frameworks built in your head, suddenly that program that I can pull apart if I've got those reasoning skills becomes, and listen to this word, can become propaganda. Because exactly. now it's not there for me to, uh, you know, be entertained. That program is there to help inculcate me into a way of thinking that the presenter wants to try to control me. And it's a matter I of polemics. Think, uh, yes. And that, I think, is one of the dangers of what we have uh, in our country when we don't teach our young people to do that kind of logic and, uh, and rhetoric discrimination. One of the other elements, too, that to amplify that one further, along with polemicists like Rush Limbaugh was obviously clearly a brilliant polemicist and remains so. Um, and by the way, he was introduced as such on a Nightline program by Ted Koppel, and they had a brilliant discussion many years ago about exactly what he does. And it was frank and it was honest and made no bones about it. But what we have now is more pernicious, more subversive. We have ninja polemicists. That is, we have people putting forward an opinion, 
putting forward things that may be far more bombastic than they are factual all across social media. And this did not exist, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago when I was growing up. While television uh, and radio may have started down that journey, what we have now is, is we, we really have just disinformation run amok. And it becomes self-amplifying by the strength of its bombast. And that is the scariest thing I think I've ever seen, that things become viral, uh, mentally viral. Uh, and, and how do you inoculate yourself? How do you vaccinate yourself against that, you know, to, to work the, the paradigm? And, you know, part of it, I think, is being able to understand the notion of false equivalency in an argument or whataboutism, the, the form of, you know, fake substitution. Yeah, well, if he said that, well, what about this? Well, what about this? It's not relevant. It's well, just it's a also, substitute. You know, it, it, it's a deflection. Well, Pete, yeah, you, you know, one of the things, too, that I think is important, especially for young people, is to understand that not everything is a binary choice. Right. Okay. Um, and not only is it uh, important for you to understand that multiple things can exist at the same time. Shading. Uh, so that when you're watching a program where a person says, well, what, if the Senate doesn't do this, uh, you know, then, you know, then these people are going to suffer. Uh, well, you know, actually, it's it's more complex than that. And we right. need to stop running away from things that are complex. Uh, you know, we need to stop thinking that for our citizens, we have to crush everything down to a simple binary kind of choice or a binary kind of image. Uh, and that comes with, again, teaching folks from preschool on uh, that every solution may have some complex types of uh, I mean, every problem may have some complex types of solution to them. Okay. Exactly. And, and of course, the problem now is everyone loves the notion of reductio ad absurdum. You know, reduction to the All absurd. Are right, you going to help me with that one? Yeah. Well, well you know, it's, it's the argument of reduction to simplicity taken too far becomes a reduction to the absurd, where you get to a conclusion that just doesn't get supported by your original statements. Well, I know not that uh, Natalia is working with a group. Uh, you're working with uh, uh, the good Dr. Reverend uh, uh, from North Reverend Barber from the Poor yeah. People's Campaign that is trying to create the sort of a block among voters and people who typically are left out of the conversations among poor people to say, you know, you actually have a voice. It's a revival of of you know Martin Luther King and the movement of sort of bringing together a group that often doesn't vote or doesn't participate and making sure that they're educated, that they're registered to push against voter suppression, which is real because, you know, while we're having this conversation around civics and education, we need to realize the structures are there to prevent many, many people from actually participating. So, you know, education is a part, it's not going to address that structural thing um, of disenfranchisement, which is, is real. So it has, it's interesting to think about um, education in also making people believe that they have, that, that, that their voice matters. I mean, I think that has been interesting to me from a global perspective. So many Americans just don't care who their representative is. Sorry, Jeff. You know, who don't uh, know who I'm, they're- I'm hurt. 
I know, but they simply don't care. They think, and maybe they're right that private. I, 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 I care, Jeff. Thank I you. care too. And you know, and <laughs> Tommy Vitolo is mine. And you know, my and you know, it's. But there's this feeling among many, many Americans that voting doesn't really matter because decisions are made by the private sector. Whereas in other countries, people take that vote very, very seriously. And it's a lot more, you know, it's felt. So I don't, I don't know. There, there is something to be said there, too. You know, what? I, I would argue that the 2016 and 2020 elections truly showed us that your vote does matter. And uh, if you show up, you can indeed change the direction uh, of the country. And if I learned anything, uh, it was um, watching how 2016 unfolded and how a candidate was described as being so far ahead in the polls, not a chance in the world uh, that she's gonna lose. And people did have that apathy, didn't show up at the polls. And lo and behold, uh, there was a loss. And the commitment in 2020 was to do whatever we can to increase voter turnout. And there was actually resistance to the notion that we should increase voter turnout, which is yeah. astounding to me. Mm. Uh, but I'm happy that that didn't prevail and didn't take the day mm. and that we had record turnouts uh, of voters. I mean, both still candidates for president got the most votes of any candidate in the history of the United States of America. Uh, that was, a, to me, was a very strong statement. Uh, and to see that record turnout was, um, if people didn't catch the message that their vote is significant, I hope they did learn that lesson through there. And, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the contests are close. And I do recall an election from a few years ago I think it was down in Georgia, and it was a state rep race that ended in a tie and had to be uh, resolved by uh, pulling names out of a hat. Um, I thought it was wow. a flip of the coin. Uh, it, 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 there was another race that I think they did a flip of a coin, and there was one pulling out of a hat. And these are, these are classic examples of, boy, uh, your vote really, really does matter. And uh, you know, I'm hoping that all of this um, civics education that we're talking about and uh, all of the lessons that we're learning are, are actually uh, working in returning people to uh, their role as engaged and educated citizens. You mentioned well, you Georgia. Know, that, that brings up a question to uh, Jeff about history. For example, um, uh, where you may have been astounded at voter suppression. I'm not astounded at voter suppression. We have a long history in this country of voter suppression. Not I'm only going. do we have a not only do we have a history of voter suppression, but we also have a history of voter intimidation, and we have a history of voter terrorism. And not to speak of some of the things that happened post-election where mm -hmm. there is a rejection of the results of an election. And again, in this country, we have a history of either a coup or an overthrow of a duly elected government through not only intimidation, but terrorism and in some cases murder. Let me give you two examples. One was in Louisiana, uh, in a little small town 
And this goes back to, again, yes, it is in the 1800s, but the election resulted in a uh, black majority rule in terms of this town or in this particular town in this parish. The folks who did not like the, the results ended up marching the people to the uh, uh, who had gone to take over the town hall, fire burning them and smoking them out, and then marching them down this road where they were duly executed. The same thing happened in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, all right, much more recently. This one was in, I think, like 1890. Don't hold me to that date and stuff because I don't have my, my references in front of me, and I'm a, uh, I'm a factual guy, guy. <laughs> so I'm just pulling this off the top of my head. But a very similar thing happened. This was a mixed uh, result in this particular city where, again, blacks and whites were elected. But there was a faction of folks who did not like the outcome of that election. And they then took all of the people who had been elected. They went out and summarily murdered them. Okay, this is the United States of America where this has happened. We don't teach that history and we don't make it clear young people that our uh, this experiment is fragile. Given the wrong kind of spark to a tinderbox, okay, it can go off in the right, uh, in the wrong direction. So I think civics engagement, as well as the teaching of true history, is extremely important. I think it's important that this goes along uh, a uh, uh, not just the social sciences, but the hard sciences as well. We have had some really tough uh, government-run experiments on people. Uh, of all types, whites and blacks and immigrants in this country. Uh, and that then is important for our students also to know that, you know, we have to be responsible as citizens. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with, uh, there's a street near uh, uh, Boston Medical Center that's named after one of the men who was a physician who participated in the experimentation and uh, uh, involuntary sterilization of women in North and South Carolina. You know, some of the, uh, the history that you, you bring up, um, you know, it, it, it's tough not having that, not having been taught that. And, uh, you know, I, I can share with you a recent example was not knowing the history uh, behind Juneteenth. And, uh, you know, when learning uh, of that history, uh, I have to tell you, I was proud and I was honored to be a part of the uh, legislature uh, that made uh, June 19th an annual state holiday in Massachusetts. We did that just a few months ago uh, in the middle of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, that's our effort and that's our way uh, of communicating to people what we believe our priorities. And uh, I think that was a, a great statement. And uh, I think that's going to lead to uh, the teaching of that horrific event. And just to bring the global perspective, Michael, you mentioned Germany. I mean, the way that the history of the Nazi sort of Nazism in Germany has led to a generation that is very, very careful. I feel like we can learn from other countries that have admitted to their 
you know, horrific crimes towards other people in a way that, you know, we, we don't even, you know, conversations are happening on the sidelines around reparations and they, there's like ups and downs. And, you know, after the civil war there were, and then they kind of disappeared and we need to start talking about the history of our country, especially, you know, against people of African descent and native Americans. I mean, so many Americans just don't know the history or think of it as this, past best history. I mean, I work with um, Mary Bassett. She's a doctor. She's a black woman. She talks about her parents who are mixed. Her mom is white. Her dad is black from the South. When they would go to the South, she had to call her aunt mom. And she was scared as a child. What could happen to her family if she turned to her mom, her real mom, who was white and said, mom, like that fear is not a generation, you know, she's not even 70. Like so many Americans have experienced themselves. And so somehow we, there's also this disconnect of like, it's our history and it's like ancient history. It's not ancient history. And how do, how do we talk about this? Or the Tuskegee, you know, experiments. And they're coming up right now in the public health community because people are saying, oh, why, why is there hesitancy around the COVID vaccine? Well, let's talk about the history of how we have experimented on, on bodies and, and how have we as a government mistreated bodies. So it is, it all comes together. You know, I want to take <laughs> off on that particular point because one of the uh, one of the bills that I have been working on and promoting uh, since my second term in the legislature, and we are this close to getting it passed in in this particular session, is is the Genocide Education Act, uh, and you know that certainly has global uh, impacts. But teaching uh, students and requiring that every student in the Massachusetts public school system has been exposed to a curriculum that includes genocide education and helps them understand that uh, hatred and intolerance, when it goes unchecked, can lead to calamitous consequences. And uh, we originally, when I filed the bill, it was to get genocide education included in the Massachusetts curriculum frameworks. We were successful. And in the 2018 revision of the Massachusetts curriculum frameworks, genocide education is part of that uh, framework. Uh, but we, what we're still finding is that uh, school districts are not, you know, using the frameworks to deliver that curriculum to their students. So we, we wanted to ramp it up uh, a little more to make it a state requirement that genocide education be part of the curriculum. And that's uh, the subject of, uh, of, of my House Bill 4433. Uh, the Senate actually passed uh, that version of the bill on July 30th, and we're working uh, to get the House to do the same thing. Uh, the, the thing that frightens me uh, is that a recent survey demonstrated that 22% of American millennials have never heard of the Holocaust. And how can that be? I, it, it strikes me. And, and I also know my, my alma mater, um, Boston College, actually uh, began in 2015 piloting a, a core curriculum that uh, introduces a course called Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. This is just basic stuff that uh, I don't think any kid should leave the school system without being exposed uh, to this type. So uh, that's a piece that uh, I'm working on currently, and uh, I'm hoping that it will get over the uh, over the hurdle uh, in this session. If not, I'll refile it again in January, and we'll keep on trying until it gets done. Well, I think you know, it's important. 
One of the things, too, uh, I think that's important is for us not to, and I know this is true on my side of the street around professional educators. We cannot, if a bill like that passes from a legislative member, Jeff, like yourself, or let's say prospectively, if not, Delia had made it to Congress, you know, that we see something coming out of either one of those two uh, bodies of government that we as educators interpret that to mean, oh, you're talking about, quote unquote, the Holocaust, and limit it to that. For example, uh, you know, when people talk about black history, I know for years, and uh, except in the schools where I worked, okay, uh, when Black History Month came up, uh, oh, that's the time for us to teach uh, about Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And I go, uh, no. It's much richer, much more robust, much more up and down, positive and negative than that. It's not just about Martin Luther King. And if you want to start someplace with the civil rights movement, don't start in the 1950s. Go back to the 1800s. Yeah, okay. Some of the objections that I've heard uh, to the bill, uh, because our, our bill includes uh, genocides going uh, back to the Armenian genocide and yeah. uh, moving us forward to more recent events. And one of the arguments that I have, uh, I've heard is, well, how can you um, refer to uh, uh, an atrocity as a genocide with, uh, that occurred in 1915 when genocide wasn't defined until the 1940s? Uh, and, uh, you know, I had debates with folks saying, well, it wasn't a genocide. It was just an atrocity. And I, and I said to myself, am I really having this conversation? Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a, lot, to, uh, a yeah, lot of complexity yeah, well, to getting this done. But let, let me say that book editors that write history books for school curriculum have to cater to California and Texas and their political thoughts if they're ever going to be able to sell the books. So the... the the people that are writing these books and curriculums are hampered, I believe, by the political and economic power of who's going to buy the textbook or how they want the textbook edited even after it's written. They want certain things taken out. It's economics. Yeah, but I think you're going to see that change. Uh, with uh, digital technology, mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't get stuck with a hard copy of a textbook. Uh, um, you know, we're not there yet, but uh, I think that's going to become less of a concern as we move to more electronic uh, materials. And I've, I've heard that argument about Texas and California since back in my school committee days. So it's, it's, it's a reality. I think... And that uh, one of the things about, you know, you mentioned the genocide. I, I did some documentary work on the Armenian genocide. One thing I noted in working on that project, A, it was absolutely horrific, definitely a genocide. I mean, they just marched Armenians out into the desert in a straight line until they dropped and died there. But the difference between the Armenian genocide and what happened with the Holocaust, largely a matter of documentation. Right. It's fascinating. Um, but that said, both of these things were absolutely horrific. But to sort of bring us back to the vote, it's interesting to know 
that we can trace both of these things back to the democratic electoral process. These movements like Nazism and so on rose up through the ranks of the election process. And they rose up through the ranks of the election process in part because of the fact that a lot of people felt disenfranchised. A lot of people were in pain. I heard a great line, well, about four years ago, sitting around the Thanksgiving table, we were talking about what we were thankful for. And one of the comments from a doctor um, at the table was, we don't see it so much in Massachusetts, but there's a lot of pain out there. Be sensitive to the fact that all that pain out there is driving a lot of people's, or substituting for a lot of people's thought process. And there's a lot of scapegoating too. Yep. Uh, you know, that pain then gets sort of taken up in terms of the propaganda. Right. Uh, and there's this, there's this image now of the immigrant who's right. causing your pain. Right. All right. It's the people coming up through the southern borders who are causing your pain. Right. And again, you throw a match on that tender box and saying, look, they're spread all in your community. And suddenly you get hate crimes, which then can grow into something even greater. Mm. Um, and it's not just about the, uh, you know, it's not just about, I think, uh, uh, the idea that citizens are experiencing pain and then they're not voting, uh, you know, in terms of logic. They're voting in terms of their emotion, uh, right. which we've had for a long, long time. Right. Uh, but we're also finding, too, that what is happening is that as we look, especially from a historical standpoint, we ignore the fact that many of these things are recurring. This is not something new. Mm. Uh, for example, when the Cherokee uh, who tried to assimilate in South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, okay, when it was deemed that, no, we want your property and we want you out of here, and suddenly the laws changed. So the vote in and of itself wasn't the cause, but the result of that vote in terms of the people who were in office, in terms right. of our representative government, uh, who then go back and create these, uh, you know, these straw images and say, hey, it's the Cherokee who are causing you not to be able to have your own farm. So why don't we take their farms and give them to you mm -hmm. so that you'll so then your lot will be better. Uh, and again, the, you know, the knowledge of that history, so that when we talk about the Trail of Tears, this is not just a matter of someone thinking, well, you know, the Cherokee would be much better off out in Oklahoma, and why don't we just round them all up and move them out there? No, this was a matter of economics and a matter of, again, a coup and a takeover, government sanctioned mm. in order for us to, again, commit this atrocity against these group of people who were, uh, I think as Natalia was saying earlier and stuff, who in essence felt as though they were powerless. Because don't forget, they didn't have the right to vote. The Cherokee Indians didn't have the right to vote in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, or Florida. There's a, an interesting international take on this. Um, I, I worked with a think tank in Washington, D.C. Oh, about 15 years ago uh, on helping them prep a presentation. Uh, the essence of that presentation, I thought, was quite stunning. When we talk about people in pain, and, and, the, and the essence of the presentation was, in examining any government and its general level of stability, the stability tends to drop off markedly when 
the income of the top 1% is greater than 10x the income of the average citizen. <laughs> now, that doesn't seem like a tremendously large difference, but we're living well beyond that right now. Well beyond. Well beyond that. And they stated and, and cited a number of governments, dictatorships, etc., that effectively toppled under those circumstances. And what they offered at the time was that the reason why the United States apparently endures this or, or, or manages to self-correct, supposedly, is through the electoral process. But now looking back at all of the people who are in all of this pain and understanding that uh, you know, they've been struggling with wages that have been stagnant now for 20, 30, 40 years, uh, it gets tougher and tougher to get by. Um, jobs are nowhere near as stable as what they used to be. Uh, the bond between worker and corporation with respect to productivity that we knew from the 50s forward um, has long been in the dustbin of history. But all that said, um, the only way that the voting process provides good course correction with respect to these kinds of things is when you have an educated citizenry within the Jeffersonian principle. An educated society is what we need. Uh, and it gets us back to our core point, the education of civics um, and the logic that underlies it. I, by the way, I, I, I took the citizenship test. You know, it's about what, 12 questions? It's not a complex test test. But out of a curiosity, I took the citizenship test. Happy to report I got them all right. Um, and yeah, I was worried, but <laughs> I, I did okay. I was going to turn off this show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, goodness. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, you know, I'll tell you, it's it, especially from, uh, and I have to come back to this, but uh, I think, Jeff, it is absolutely admirable when, uh, but at the same time, unfortunate, when a legislative member who sees a need for something inside of our curriculum uh, can't just point that out, but has to, in essence, create a, uh, you know, a whole legislative movement around it, uh, you know, a piece of legislation, uh, teaching genocide. Uh, like, for example, for me as a social studies teacher, when I'm teaching history, if I'm teaching American history, I felt responsibility to teach all of the points in time in American history. When acts of genocide, in particular in this country, when I'm teaching American history as a means of either uh, land acquisition and takeover or or for some economic means. Uh, and a couple of examples, uh, again, expansion West, when we started to basically say that it was important to kill off the Native American population in order to expand into the more fertile lands that they had, and then relegating them to some of the more unproductive lands. Uh, or when we were in the Caribbean, whether it was in Cuba uh, or in Haiti, uh, when we've helped uh, the, uh, the people to uh, set up governments that were 
anesthetically against the population, but economically in our favor. And these are modern examples. Uh, and we can go through the entire history of the United States when this has happened, and we've been party to that. Uh, so it's not just the international incidences of genocide, uh, but we also have to, when we're teaching American history, be honest, uh, you know, about our own use of this means uh, to, uh, to eliminate, uh, and as our Native American folks would say, rub out an entire population. I think it was Ben Franklin, in fact, uh, who might have said, no man's money and property are safe whenever Congress is in session. <laughs> and the other one I'd quote from Mark Twain was, there isn't a single inch of land anywhere on the surface of the earth that's in the current hands of its rightful owner. <laughs> Just a couple of observations. I'm troubled that uh, we, we have to do uh, legislative pieces for this. I, I do, I am confident and I do know that um, a number of school districts do a very good job uh, doing this. Uh, sometimes uh, legislation is a means of starting a conversation and convincing uh, people that this is something worth uh, talking about. Absolutely. Um, and you know, in conversations like we're having here today uh, are part of that uh, entire effort. So. Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't bother me that uh, I had to file a, a piece of uh, legislation to get it going. It's just that's what I do for work. I file bills, and um, and bills stem from right. problems well, that uh, I see out there in the world or uh, that are brought to my attention, and truly try to figure out a way uh, to fix them. So it's I'm delighted that we have the ability uh, to do this. To get these conversations going, so I think that's how Rock, uh, Reverend Barber started in in North Carolina. Uh, Natalia, is that correct? And you know, he really wanted to have his Moral Mondays. Natalia is the only one that has currently children in the school system. What what is it that, as a parent, you're hoping that the school system does uh, for the children you have? Thanks so much for that question, Frank. I have a seven-year-old who's in second grade, and I have three-year-old twins, so they are very early in the education system. I mean, I want what, what Michael has explained. I want teachers who don't hide the truth, of course, are sensitive, uh, age-appropriate ways of talking about our history, um, the ongoing and historic racism, the genocides that have been experienced. I should uh, mention, Jeff, my grandfather uh, was born in Asia Minor. You know, Greeks, like the Armenians, had to flee. There was a big fire in 1922. He was a refugee. Um, you know, so for many of us, it's part of our histories that we talk at home. And somehow there's a mismatch because you don't hear the same stories at home that you hear in school. And, and that's unfair because it's only a, a small, some, some kids miss that. And, you know, so that's one part. I love, we live in Brookline, and I love that there are kids from many different countries who are here either immigrants or just here on short term. And so I would love the history of the U.S. to also include the role of the U.S. globally. You know, we don't talk about the role of the U.S. toppling democracies in Latin America or, you know, there, there are things that the U.S. has done right by the world, but there's this exceptionalism that is 
it's nice to be proud of where you come from, but if you never acknowledge any errors, it's hard to to move forward. So acknowledging errors, acknowledging that Americans, like other people, have made mistakes and that mistakes will continue to happen, but that with your vote, with your political participation, you can change the path. I think that's important. But for my kids, I am I'm hopeful. And I'm very hopeful because I'm seeing the 11-year-olds, the 15-year-olds talking about climate change, being much more engaged and saying, you know, the world that you are as adults shaping matters. And I want to be politically engaged from now. She knows about, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a small story. I was putting her to bed when I was running for Congress. And she was really sad because I had been, you know, on the campaign trail. And I said to her, you know, do you want me to sort of step away from this? And she said, no, you need to change the laws. You need to make sure they are the right laws. Like she wanted, she was willing to sacrifice not having her mom around. And I think that is shared by a lot of kids who, who recognize that the future matters. No, it's interesting that uh, um, learning that you grew up in uh, Greece. Um, when I was in college, in my junior year in college, I had transferred to uh, Bates College, and um, I was put in a room that, you know, not many empty spaces where you can go and you don't choose your roommates. But uh, my roommate was uh, from Greece, and uh, I was in the international dorm, and I was exposed to people. Uh, from throughout the world. And it was probably the best education I had. My roommate and I, he was, uh, he was in the age of Papandreou when he was be taking uh, leadership in, in Greece. And uh, he described himself as a socialist and the debates that we would have in that room and the yelling and screaming matches that we would have. Uh, he's a friend of mine to this day. He's uh, uh, the former provost at the... Uh, 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 American University of Thessaloniki, and uh, he's doing quite well. He's an economist, but uh, the exposure was incredible, and and that's what I would love to see uh, kids throughout our system to have that type of vibrant and robust exposure, so that they can teach for themselves. I mean, history has a bias uh, by the people who write the history. Um, you know, exposing kids to uh, people and places and things, let them decide for themselves what it means. And that's a, that's a, that's a real powerful education. And um, that experience I had in my junior year has really solidified that for me. And, you know, that's 35 years ago. I, I should have said five years ago. I'm sorry. I'm not that old. <laughs> As as we're winding up, uh, are there any uh, last observations? Uh, Pete, do you have uh, the words of wisdom that you started the show with? Well, I would say simply this, that an educated vote is the pathway towards a more perfect union. Michael? Well, I have to ditto what Pete said, and also that we must continue, uh, I think, between all segments of our society, the legislative in governing branches, the educators, uh, uh, our doctors, our scientists, uh, our economists, all of us have to participate not only in the democratic voting process, but we've got to continue these conversations because uh, it all needs to be, uh, I think, as Pete put, uh, you know, leading us toward a more perfect union. That, Leah? Just to add that this conversation is 
the beginning. I think the, I mentioned it earlier that the education and the civics piece has to go hand in hand with the conversation around structures and, and I'm loving these conversations we're having. And Jeff? I would like to, you know, close my thoughts with um, just trying to get people um, to have and engage in these types of conversations in a civilized context, respect one another, look one another in the eye, see each other, talk. You don't have to agree, but have some empathy for your brothers and sisters in the world and understand that we're not enemies in this journey. And with good synergy and uh, good working together, it's amazing the beautiful things that we can accomplish. And uh, I love getting together with this group and, and having these conversations because it gives me a sense uh, that there is a pathway to do this as long as we don't demonize those who disagree with us. And, uh, you know, let's be, try to be persuasive, try to get them to your position, but respect that uh, nobody sees the world exactly as I do. And that's okay. It still can be a beautiful place. PJ, we're on 102.9 FM. And if the listening public would like to make comments or even suggest uh, uh, subjects, how can they do that? Uh, anyone who wants to comment on anything that they've heard on the air, they can simply email us. And the email is info at wfpr.fm. Uh, again, that's info at wfpr.fm. Uh, we also have a phone number, which is 508-528-WFPR. Um, uh, so anyone wishes to comment, you can either call or email us. We'd love to hear from you, quite frankly. Uh, we'd love to hear from you very much. And this is Frank Falvey, uh, thanking not only the panel, but all the listeners in uh, the greater Franklin uh, area. And we look forward to you turning in again for our next episode. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>